There's certainly no shortage of things to be anxious about today, things to be fearful of, things that make us angry, things that make us frustrated. It can all feel pretty overwhelming. But here's the concern. When you get caught up in all that stuff, there's a pretty good chance you're gonna miss your moments today. Life is a gift. Every day matters. Today is a day you'll never get back. If you miss it, you missed it. Most of our lives are lived in the ordinary. But God has this habit of meeting us in the ordinary and turning it into something extraordinary. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Exodus chapter 2. Last week, Ryan opened up our study of the book of Exodus. And he reminded us that God has blessed the Hebrew people in Egypt. They have been fruitful and multiplied into a significant nation. As a matter of fact, it's the blessing of God that has actually created their distress in that the Pharaoh is now threatened by the growing size of the nation and is making their lives miserable. His great plan is to take all the Hebrew baby boys born and cast them into the Nile and put them to death. That's where we left the story last week. We pick it up in chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sisters stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So a man takes a wife and they conceive and have a child and that child is a son. This should immediately cause concern because of what we just learned in chapter one. Pharaoh wants all the Hebrew baby boys thrown in the river and put to death. There's two New Testament passages that offer a fair amount of commentary on this story. One is in Acts chapter 7, the other is in Hebrews chapter 11. The life groups are going to roll up their sleeves and look more at those passages. But what we're told in Acts chapter 7, what we're told in Hebrews 11, rather, is that this man and woman, by faith, 
were not afraid of the Pharaoh and chose rather to fear God and refused to throw their son into the river. The way this is wording is a little misleading. When it says mom looked at her baby and he was beautiful. So she hid him rather than throwing him in the river. It almost sounds like if the baby was ugly, she'd have thrown him in the river. It's not what it means at all. First of all, what mom doesn't think their baby's beautiful, but also what a weird value system that you'd make a life and death decision on whether the baby's cute or not. It's actually the Hebrew word for good. It's the exact same word that's used in Genesis chapter one. There's a lot in the book of Exodus that connects us back to the Genesis creation narrative. We're reminded that God ultimately created the world good. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And as a result of their sin, they were evicted out of the Garden of Eden. And from that point on, the story of the Bible has been about an exodus. An exodus, a deliverance from exile back to God and back to the world as God intended it to be. So these Hebrew narratives written with such tremendous skill and creativity are actually connecting this Exodus story with the larger narrative throughout the Bible that this has always been a story about an exodus back to God. You see it in the story of Noah and the flood. You see it in the covenant promised to Abraham. And now you see it in the exodus out of Egypt into the land of promise. So they hide the little boy for three months, but that's not a sustainable strategy. So the mom takes the little boy and puts him in a basket. It was actually fairly common practice in Egypt in the ancient world to build boats this way. They would take the reeds of the papyrus, they would weave them into the shape of a boat, they would cover the boat with tar and pitch and it would float. So this is just a smaller version of this, but it's very important to understand, it's not actually a basket. The Hebrew word is ark. There's only two places in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word is used. One is the story of Noah and the ark, the other is here. Again, the intention is to connect us with this larger narrative of deliverance throughout the Bible. 
The ark would actually be salvation for Noah and his family that would save them from a watery grave. In the same way, the mom of this little Hebrew boy is putting him in an ark in order to save him from a watery death in the Nile River. So she takes him, puts him in the reeds, and puts the little boy's sister on guard to see what happens. So this is the first that we learn, this little baby's got a sister. So the sister we will come to know later as Miriam. Then there's another boy whom we will come to know as Aaron. And now this baby. But we're getting the sense this baby's going to be something different. Verse, 20, uh, verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. And her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought it to her. And she opened it. And she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity, she had compassion on him, and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, let's imagine we don't know the rest of the story. At this moment in the story, our first reaction would be, this is the worst case scenario. This is the daughter of the Pharaoh that has ordered all these Hebrew boys to be thrown in the river. Couldn't be a worse person to find this little baby in the reeds. She sees the little ark, the basket. She sends her maid. Her maid brings her the basket. The text literally doesn't say she saw the child it's a masculine noun. She saw a boy. It's driving home the point. She saw a boy was crying, weeping. It's a powerful word. This is the only place in the Old Testament this Hebrew word is used to describe a baby crying, weeping. She had pity, compassion. She said, this is one of the Hebrews. Again, this is one of the Hebrew boys. So it's building the tension. If this was a movie and we were watching on closed caption, at this point in the story, the words would say tense music playing. <laughs> because this is all of a sudden got really tense. What is she going to do. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now there's a lot of discussion as to whether this was the plan or this is just what happened. I lean more toward the idea this probably was the plan. It would not have been unthinkable that some of these Hebrew slaves would have become aware of Pharaoh's daughter, who seemed to have a compassionate, tender heart, unlike her dad, that perhaps longed for children and had none, and that it was her regular pattern to go to this point in the Nile to bathe. So the sister is positioned and ready. When the baby is brought to Pharaoh's daughter, she rushes to the scene. Would you like me to go find a Hebrew mother that can nurse the child for you? Just go ahead. So she brings back the child's own mother. And Pharaoh's daughter says, take the baby, nurse the baby, basically take the child until he is weaned. As a matter of fact, I will pay you to do it. It's not hard to see the hand of the sovereign God in all this. So she does. After probably three to four years, that's about when a child would be weaned in that culture, she brings the little boy back to Pharaoh's daughter. I'm sure this was a very painful moment for her, but what is she gonna do? Literally, the language of the text would be Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as her son, and she names him Moses. Moses is actually an Egyptian name, means something like to be born or a boy is born, something like that. But it also sounds almost exactly like a Hebrew word that means to draw out or to draw out of the water. Again, there's discussion as to whether this was intentional or just happened to be. I think with the relationship with the boy's mom and all of that, I lean more toward it was intentional. A very clever naming of this boy. When the text says, because he was drawn out of the water, that could either be referring to why he was named Moses, or it could simply be referring to why she had a claim to this little boy. He was abandoned in the reeds, and she found him and drew him out of the water. Therefore, she adopted him and she named him. There's a couple things to point out before we go further in the story. One is there's a clever use of the Hebrew word for took. 
that I think captures the idea of ordinary decisions made on ordinary days. So it goes like this. Literally, the Hebrew is a man took a wife. Pretty ordinary. The woman, the mother, took the baby to the ark. The maiden took the ark to Pharaoh's daughter. After somewhere around 400 years of bondage, one day after another, something so common as a man took a wife, started a series of events where she took the baby to the ark and the maiden took the ark to the daughter of the Pharaoh, started something that is going to be absolutely extraordinary. The second thing is Ryan mentioned last week that the Pharaoh isn't named. Lots of players aren't named, but the only people named in chapter one as part of the story are the two midwives who courageously feared God. You have a very similar dynamic in this part of chapter two. Moses' parents aren't named. His sister's not named. The maidens aren't named. The daughter of Pharaoh isn't named. Only one person is named, Moses. Which gives the reader a hint that apparently Moses is gonna be a major player in the story to come. Third thing worth noting is Pharaoh believes himself to be God. And he is at war with the Hebrew God. So his solution is to throw all these Hebrew baby boys in the river. That will solve the problem. So you can't miss the irony of what God does through a series of women. A woman has a baby boy. She puts him in the ark. The maidens bring the ark to the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh adopts the Hebrew boy as her own son. The ultimate deliverer of the Hebrew people from the bondage of Egypt will actually grow up in the Pharaoh's house right under his nose. It's not hard to see the hand of God in all of that. Verse 11, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? And he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid 
and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. The Exodus text does not tell us how much time has passed, but Acts chapter seven does. 40 years have passed. 40 years of Moses growing up in the house of Pharaoh that we know nothing about. Acts chapter seven says he was educated in all the finest learnings of Egypt, which basically meant he had a world-class education. Nobody would have offered a better education than the Egyptians. He would have been trained in military, he would have learned in science and math. But finally, after 40 years, you just imagine the Hebrews that were aware of this are wondering and waiting. 40 years is a long time to wait. I'm gonna guess that over those 40 years, Moses was aware of the oppression of Pharaoh's family over the Hebrew people. And it probably got more and more difficult to see that happen. So one day he's out and about and he sees an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. And the text tells us he was bothered by all the oppression he saw. So he looks here and he looks there. Nobody's looking. So he kills him and he buries him in the sand. Now there's a few commentators that want to defend Moses as doing the right thing. Seems to me that's a very difficult case to make. Number one, we're specifically told he looked one way, he looked the other way, he hid the body, he clearly, clearly knows he did something wrong. But second of all, if this is a plan, if this is a strategy, what is the strategy? Is he gonna kill the Egyptians, one Egyptian at a time? This is no strategy, it's an impulsive moment. I think he had so much inside of him that had built up as he had watched Pharaoh and his army oppress his people that in this moment he reacted. But in reacting as he did on one day, he's now made a mess of things. So the next day he's out and about and this time there's a Hebrew striking another Hebrew. So Moses confronts him. Look, what are you doing? Again, the clever way these are written, the language is literally. There was an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. Moses struck the Egyptian. There's a Hebrew striking a Hebrew. Same word. Moses intervenes. We're told in Acts chapter seven, 
that Moses thought the Hebrew people would see him as their deliverer, rally to him. But that's not what happened at all. These are not nice church folk. These people have been in bondage and slavery for 400 years. They are angry, they are bitter, and it is every man for himself. So the response is, wait a minute, who died and made you boss? What makes you think you can rule over us? One of the interesting things about that comment is it won't be long until Moses will be appointed their ruler and judge. And this same tension will continue throughout the story. Moses at this point realizes the word is out and he's terrified. The Pharaoh hears what Moses did and wants to kill him. I think it's interesting that almost immediately his grandfather wants to kill him. I'm going to guess he wasn't all that happy about having a Hebrew boy as a grandson in his household. And he perhaps always was concerned this could happen. So he's going to deal with it and deal with it quickly. So Moses flees into the land of Midian, which is way out in the Sinai Desert. The Midianites were actually descendants of Abraham. And he finds himself there at a well. Now, one other thing to notice that would be easy to miss is in these Hebrew narratives, one of the things we always look for is the very first dialogue that comes out of the mouth of a main character, because typically that's going to define that person's character. So you see it in Samuel, you see it in Saul, you see it in David, and here we see it with Moses. In verse 13, the very first words ever recorded out of the mouth of Moses are, why are you striking your companion? What will define Moses is he has this passion for justice and a desire to stop the oppression. And that will define Moses in many ways all throughout the book of Exodus. I think that's what happens that day when he kills the Egyptian. This stuff had built up inside of him. He sees what's happening. And in the moment, his heart for justice, his desire to do something about this impression, oppression overwhelmed him. But he made a disastrous decision. It would have been impossible to stay alive in the Sinai desert without a well. So it's often a gathering place. But if we've read through the book of Genesis, we also know there's this motif 
where the well becomes a place where a man finds a wife. This is where Abraham's servant went to find Rebekah for Isaac. This is where Jacob found Rachel to be his wife. So as the reader, we're just wondering here a little bit. Could there be something more that's coming? Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Oh boy, here we go. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. And Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So these daughters come to the well. They're watering themselves and their animals. And along come the shepherds, men, and drive them off the well because they want the water. They want to water their livestock. But Moses, with this passion for justice, this desire to help the oppressed, again rises to the occasion, stands up, draws water for the women and for their livestock. So they go home. And dad says, hey, what are you doing home so early? You get the impression this was a problem every day. And they say there was an Egyptian. They identify Moses as an Egyptian, perhaps from his clothing, perhaps from his hairstyle, perhaps from his language or dialect. But they say there was an Egyptian and this is what he did for us. Their father says, well, where is he? Invite him home for dinner. So with rapid succession, there's not much detail. Moses agrees to stay. He gets Zipporah for a wife. And they have a son, Gershom, which is a word that means stranger. You can clearly hear Moses' pain in the naming of his son. You tell me, where does Moses belong? Is he Egyptian? In the house of Pharaoh? With the Hebrews? With the Midianites? It's like a man without a home. It's like a man without a country. He doesn't fit anywhere. And that's reflected in the name. I'm a stranger. I don't know where I fit. Now again, imagine you don't know the rest of the story. This story opened with little glimmers of hope. 
After 400 years, something happened. Something ordinary. A man took a wife. They had a son. She took him to the ark. The maiden took the ark to the daughter of Pharaoh. And he would be raised in the household of Pharaoh. And there's this feeling that something big is about to happen. Finally. But all it takes is one day. Moses goes out and makes a mess of things. And now he's fled for his life into the Sinai desert. And it feels like all hope is lost. Whatever was going to be, whatever God was up to, seems like that's all over now. You have to understand that then to set up verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed. That's probably better. They lamented, they groaned because of the bondage. They cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Four verbs. God heard their cries. God remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not gonna rescue these people because they're such fine folks. They're not, they're a mess. He's gonna deliver them because he made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would. And that promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God made a promise, he's gonna keep that promise. So it's this ongoing story of deliverance. So he heard, he remembered, he saw, and he took notice. Took notice is actually the translation of the Hebrew word yada, which is the word that's used to describe sexual relations between a husband and a wife. It's a very intimate term. God didn't just notice. God noticed in an intimate, caring way. So chapter two ends with this little glimmer of hope where maybe the story's not over. Maybe all is not lost. Maybe God is still up to something extraordinary. But it will be 40 long years before the next thing happens. Which is chapter three that we'll look at next week. One of the dangers in these Old Testament narratives is to lose track of the passage of time. Where it feels like the people cry out, God shows up and delivers them, one, two, three, there you go. And we wonder, why doesn't God do that for us? When we cry out, why doesn't God answer the prayer and fix everything? But what we lose track of is how much time 
passes in these stories where they wait. Ordinary, everyday days where they wait. 40 years following a few sheep around the Sinai desert is a long time to wait. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, 40 years of oppression and pain and crying out is a long time to wait. But one thing almost all these Old Testament stories have in common is long periods of waiting in very ordinary days. Since Genesis chapter 3, the world has been waiting. Waiting for the exodus, waiting for the deliverance, waiting for God to do something. God made a promise. It's pictured through Noah and the ark. It's promised to Abraham. It's pictured in the exodus out of Egypt. It's pictured again and again and again. But mostly it's waiting. God fulfilled his promise 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to be the savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, that through his death on a cross for the sins of the world, he would make a way back to God, was buried and rose again the third day, having conquered both sin and death. He offers his salvation freely as a gift. But for those of us who believe, we still wait. Much of the message of the New Testament is waiting. Waiting for the promised return of the Messiah, of our Savior, because the exodus is not completed until Jesus returns and we are delivered from the pain and the suffering and the problems of this world and we are returned to the world as God always intended it to be until that moment the exodus is not complete. So we wait. Most of our life will be lived in ordinary days. So what does that look like for you? Today's a gift. You'll never get today back again. You don't get a do-over. Once it's gone, it's gone. If you miss it, you miss it. So what does it look like to be faithful today? Such as your life is today. You can wish all day long that your life was different. But it's not different. This is what it is. So what are you going to do with it? 
This is what it is today. So what's it look like for you to be faithful today? What's it look like for you to be purposeful today? What's it look like for you to be courageous and to trust God today? What's it look like to live on mission today? What's it look like to be at peace today? We need to take a page out of Jesus's playbook in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You better pay attention to today because you don't get today back. There's no way to live a faithful life without learning to be faithful in the ordinary stuff of every day. In order to live for the things that matter, we live for the things that matter in the ordinary every day. May God find us faithful to treasure and value every day. Because to be faithful, you have to take it one day at a time. Our Father, we're thankful that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. But Lord, as believers, we still wait. We still wait for the completion of the exodus out of exile. The return to the world as you intended it to be. Lord, we acknowledge this morning the world is broken. So much pain, so much suffering, so much confusion. Lord, in the midst of all that, may you find us faithful today that we would not miss the moments. In Jesus' name, amen.